Good evening. <coughs> uh, thank you for your introduction. Uh, my topic tonight is uh, Evolving Japanese Perspectives on Death and Dying. Uh, Japanese attitudes towards death and dying have gone through profound changes during the 20th century. Three different periods with divergent attitudes stand out. First, the period of idealizing death and dying for the emperor and for the country during World War II. Secondly, the long period of treating death and dying as a taboo subject from 1946 to uh, 1986. And thirdly, the growth of the hospice movement uh, characterized by a newly awakened interest in death education and in improving terminal care for the dying and grief care for the bereaved. That's from 1986 uh, to the present. Uh, the first period is idealizing death and dying for the emperor and for the country. As you all know, during World War II, uh, dying for the emperor and for Japan was propagated as an honorable and ideal way of dying. Elements of the traditional samurai ethic were received. About one and a half million soldiers, well, fathers, husbands, sons, uh, died a so-called heroic death fighting for the emperor, and families were not supposed to grieve or feel regret, but rather they were supposed to be proud of the death of their loved ones, which of course was a big obstacle to the real grief process. <clears throat> In 1944, the Kamikaze Special Attack Force, Kamikaze meaning wind of the guards, started to attack Allied uh, ships in suicide dives. Many of the pilots were college students. Some were teenagers with less than two months of flight training. About 2,200 kamikaze pilots sacrificed their lives in these suicide attacks. The night before certain death, some young pilots wrote enthusiastic letters to their parents showing their joy and pride at being chosen to offer their young lives to the emperor. I just talked to a former kamikaze pilot uh, who is now the, um, um, the person in charge of one of the uh, chapters that I founded of the Japanese Association for Death Education and Grief Counseling. And um, he was supposed to um, die the next day to fly and attack an American ship. And so he was all prepared. And the next morning, when he walked to his plane, he was told the war has ended. So I asked him, how do you f did you feel that morning? And he said, I felt terribly. I wanted to die. So that means these young people, they were really indoctrinated to die. And uh, they uh, were some, at least this uh, man was still alive, he was disappointed that uh, he could not die, for which he had trained now for several months. The night before, uh, uh, um, they, showed, they wrote letters, but uh, during the constant flow of reports about so-called heroic death uh, on the battlefield, the Japanese began to experience, of course, mega-death, 
uh, where um, even the otherwise skillful propaganda of radiant newspapers found it difficult to idealize death, especially the bombing of uh, this city of Tokyo on March the 10th, 1945, killed 100,000 people in one day. And in Kobe, 60,000 died in the bombings. And finally, of course, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August the 6th, 1945, left about 75,000 dead. And three days later, uh, there were 39,000 dead in Nagasaki. So this is the first period on death and dying in Japan. The second period is now death as a taboo subject in Japan from 1946 to 1986. The topic of death became a taboo after the war. After having experienced so much senseless death, we can sympathize with the Japanese people in their efforts to avoid the subject as much as possible. I remember two uh, former students of mine coming to my office in 1980 and asking that in my speech at their wedding party, I should not mention that both of them had taken my philosophy of death course at Sofia University because they were afraid that I would praise them for taking this course. And they said that would upset the guest. The word death is an absolute taboo at a wedding, they told me. Of course, um, I knew that already, and I would never have talked about philosophy of death. I would simply have said they had taken my philosophy court, and not um, having used it. But then uh, I have had the experience in many hospitals where I did research in Japanese hospitals that many hospitals did not have the room number four. And as you all know already, the word for uh, four is she. And the word for death is also she. So many hospitals um, will not have a room number four. And um, in my lectures all over the country, we had often, in after my lecture, a reception in one of the hotels. And at the entrance, I have experienced it several times, they wrote then, Seito Shio Kangaru Kai, this society for um, uh, death education and grief counseling. And in one hotel in Okayama, I remember the manager of the hospital came running to me and said, please uh, t take away that, uh, that Seito Shio Kangaru We have also a, hospice a, uh, a wedding reception today in the, in the, um, in the, um, uh, in the same hotel, and the guests would be upset to see the to see even the word she in uh, at the entrance. Well, that was absolutely uh, absolute uh, taboo to even talk about death. Uh, medical education after uh, 1945 was directed toward cure and prolongation of life alone. I have um, talked to many medical doctors who told me the same story that uh, in six years of their medical education, the topic of death was never mentioned. It was only that their professors would tell them if a patient has incurable cancer and you know he will be dying, please don't tell him that. Don't tell, talk to the families, but never to the patient about his or her approaching death, or that 
this is a cancer that cannot be cured anymore. That was the amount of uh, education about death they received in the medical schools. <coughs> in 1987, the Ministry of Health and Welfare appointed a committee uh, to study the complex issues of caring for the terminally ill and ways to care for the dying. Uh, I was the only uh, Henna Gaijin, the only foreigner in this committee, and um, uh, we worked for two years to develop guidelines for better care for, uh, for, for cancer patients. And uh, in that process, I learned a lot about the difficulties of death in the medical profession. The, um, uh, our presiding uh, person in this committee was Professor Morioka, who had operated on the emperor, and we all knew that he had, hadn't told the truth to the emperor. So it was very difficult for us to discuss the issue of truth-telling to cancer patients. Mm -hmm. But since I was the only Henna Gaijin, so I thought I have to do this unpleasant job, and I suggested I think it is, it is um, uh, good to tell the truth to cancer patients in order to have better communication between the doctor and the patient as well as being the patient and his or her family. And you wouldn't believe what objections I got from the officials of the Ministry of Health. They said, now we are here in Japan, and in Japan we do not tell the truth to cancer patients. And there was a long, long discussion, but eventually after two years, uh, our committee worked for two years in the ministry, um, everybody agreed that it would, be, uh, it would be better to tell the truth. And uh, recently, I was in another committee in the ministry, and I asked a very simple question now, since we published that in the year, this was published, our recommendation, our guidelines in the year uh, 1989. Now, after, after 18 years, um, uh, how is it now? And the Ministry of Health were very, uh, happy and said, well, there was a big success already. Over 50% of the doctors tell the truth now. Ne? So he thought there was a big success ne? that we uh, made the suggestion at that time. But that shows you, that is, of course, uh, the absolute, uh, I come back later to the whole issue of hospice, the hospice movement, uh, a basic obstacle of the hospice movement. If you don't tell the truth to a cancer patient, how can you then ask him or her, do you want to spend the last days in a general hospital with a lot of machines, or do you prefer to um, um, uh, hospice or um, perhaps even a home care hospice. Né? You cannot ask the question if you do not tell the truth about his or her situation. So for me, the, one of the big goals at that time was to develop the hospice movement because there was only one hospice in the whole of Japan, and I come back later to this issue, that uh, this question of uh, truth-telling to patients is for me also, um, since I was teaching uh, philosophical anthropology here at Sofia University, also a question of the dignity of man, eh, the dignity that we respect, the dignity of a human person. And um, for that it is, um, of course, uh, not only uh, 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 
it is, uh, in my opinion, necessary that we do not tell lies uh, on such important issues. Because I have um, experience, I've worked in American uh, hospices and hospitals and also in Germany and here in Japan, and I have experienced many, many patients who, after having been told that uh, they have incurable cancer, that they really uh, did a lot to uh, sol uh, solve uh, unsolved uh, uh, problems, uh, especially family problems, or took care of the issues of their companies. And so it doesn't mean that, um, uh, as I was asked by a high official in the ministry, uh, do you really think that truth-telling um, is the right way. Do you really think that we could or should deprive the patient of hope? And there, of course, I got my homework on the issue of hope because I have experienced a few hundred people dying, and I know that every person um, holds on to hope till the last hour, but the object of hope is changing all the time. If a person is told that he or she has cancer, of course, um, uh, he or she cannot hope anymore not to have cancer, but they usually have hope then that um, uh, an operation or whatever uh, will uh, cure them from the uh, um, uh, cancer. But then if at the time of the operation they found, find out that the, that the, the cancer is not curable, and if they then opt to go to a hospice, that doesn't mean that at the entrance of the hospice is written, everybody sh who enters here should give up all hope. They then still hope to have good um, um, pain control, and also that they have somebody uh, till the last, uh, uh, till the end, um, uh, accompanying them. Uh, what we use, say, in German, the Sterbebegleitung. That, um, that, that is a, another hope, but that is a very important hope, because in our committee, the uh, probably the number one uh, pain control expert was always sitting next to me, and he said, uh, well, he said publicly, not to me, but in all probably, that at that time, uh, in Japan, in Japanese university hospitals, about 47% um, of the patients received sufficient pain control, 47%. That means, in other words, more than half did not receive sufficient pain control at that time. And uh, I knew at that time in other countries there were already better uh, uh, pain control uh, 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 available, but of course in Japan we have a very strong um, uh, you know, a group of a very strong industry who doesn't want uh, to uh, import that if they can develop it in a few years. But in these few years, the patients have to suffer. And he said, it, this is, he did his research on university hospitals only, that of course the other general hospitals were of course much worse, he told me. Eh? But this is also an issue where uh, things have enormously improved in Japan. Since uh, our committee uh, meeting, uh, uh, the, uh, the pain control uh, has improved a lot in Japan, and they use also more morphine now than they did before, but still it is not sufficient. And of course, we, if we get sick, 
we don't know whether this this uh, uh, this hospital has a good pain control or not. I know from uh, some of my former students who work in uh, retirement homes in Tokyo, in this big city, and they tell me they do not use pain control at all because there's nobody, uh, no, uh, no doctor who can do it, but the other bigger issue is they don't want to spend money on it. And that is not uh, 20 years ago, that is at present this year. Now, uh, the important issue that has not been resolved is in, in Japan, of course, if after uh, somebody, a patient, is told about incurable uh, uh, cancer, uh, who uh, can do the emotional or spiritual support for these patients after they have been told the truth about their condition. The lack of emotional support and spiritual care for patients facing death remains a basic problem uh, today. In uh, Europe and the United States, we have uh, seen hundreds of, of uh, hospitals and also of hospices, in fact over 200 hospices. And they usually have, of course, chaplains or counselors who offer emotion and spiritual support. In Japan, however, one of the big issues is that uh, uh, the Buddhists uh, have do not um, uh, uh, this uh, cannot fulfill this role in hospitals or hospices to a large extent because as many Buddhist priests have told me that uh, they are turned away from hospitals or because they simply tell them uh, the, that the, the Buddhist priest is so much connected with the funeral that many patients in the hospital, they, if they see a, a Buddhist priest coming in, that they s s believe that they are now ready to prepare for, for the funeral with the relatives. And so that they consider that as a, an unwelcome uh, visit. That is improving a little bit. There are now, I have a lot of uh, um, um, discussions with uh, Buddhist, uh, especially younger Buddhist priests, they are very much interested in uh, fulfilling this uh, role of a chaplain in hospitals or hospices, but um, the image has to be changed in order to be uh, accepted in uh, these institutions. I'm now coming to the third period uh, that I mentioned. There are three periods in the 20th century in Japan. The third period in the evolution of Japanese attitudes toward death and dying is that of the growing hospice movement, characterized by a newly awakened interest in death education and improving terminal care for the dying and of grief care for the bereaved. That is the new era. And it started around 1986, and of course it continues um, till today and is still growing very much. Um, I, when I realized that there was no grief care at all, Japanese hospitals, when they, the patient has died, that is the end of the contact with the families, then I thought it may be a good idea to um, develop a grief care program outside the hospitals. The hospitals, the hospitals are not doing it anyhow. So in the year 1982, I founded the uh, Japanese Association for Death Education and Grief Counseling, 
I will afterwards refer it in an abbreviated form as simply as association. So um, uh, the foundation, I suggested that um, this uh, uh, organization should have three goals. The first goal is providing death education, de education about death and dying, grief, bereavement, and so on, um, for both hospital and hospice staff, for the general public, and also for junior and senior high schools. That's the first goal, death education. Then the second goal is improving terminal care in hospitals and developing hospice programs. And the third goal, establishing mutual support groups for bereaved people, which at that time did not exist in Japan. Besides these three goals, each chapter is encouraged to creatively develop an, a, new activities according to their own uh, concrete needs. So I will sh briefly um, uh, describe these three uh, goals. The first goal is death education. Each of the, we have now 53 uh, chapters in Japan with about 5,000 members. They, um, from Hokkaido till to Okinawa in all the major cities like uh, Sapporo, Tomakomai, Asaikawa, and uh, also in uh, Okayama, Kobe, uh, and in all the major cities we have uh, ACTA, we have a chapter of the association, and um, the association uh, is run all by volunteers. Um, now the first goal, death education, each of these 53 chapters, they have on principle every month a lecture for uh, doctors, nurses, and also for the general public on uh, uh, topics like uh, um, uh, like um, um, uh, care for the dying, uh, for pain con on pain control, how to teach children about death and dying, on hospice care, home care hospice, the role of the hospice volunteer, bereavement and grief uh, at the loss of a spouse, complicated grief, the meaning of the funeral, etc. Topics like that. We offer them every. Uh, every month lecture. And uh, usually we invite um, medical doctors, nurses, or uh, grief specialists on grief care who offer these, uh, 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 was it? And uh, then besides that, um, usually uh, once a year, a big um, uh, uh, one day or two day uh, seminar, I did that. Uh, if you know uh, Sofia University, we have this 800-seat um, um, uh, lecture hall here, number 10 building, and for for about uh, 20 years, I've every year I have had a, a two-day uh, seminar there, and always 800 people, and sometimes we had to turn away 2,000 people who applied for it, and always 800 uh, people was always filled on all these topics. Uh, on death education, and um, I published uh, six volumes on um, the uh, proceedings of these uh, seminars. One is called uh, Thinking About Life and Death in Japanese, Seito Shio Kangairu, um, one losing one's spouse, learning from the death of a loved one, hospices and terminal care in Japan, a new culture of death, uh, sudden death and grief. These are all different um, uh, topics that we have treated and I published later on then the proceedings uh, uh, in book form. I brought a few books along in the 
room next door if you want to take a look at it afterwards. I myself gave a <coughs> uh, every week uh, uh, a lecture on NHK television on these topics, and that came out under the title Shitado Mukyaoka, uh, on facing death. And that's also now translated from Japanese into Korean. It's also a bestseller in Korea. In Japan, it has already 27 uh, editions now. Um, so this is the uh, first big issue, uh, education about death, dying, bereavement, grief, funeral, all these issues. We had also one uh, seminar just on the funeral, on the meaning of the funeral. Eh? and which is a very important issue in Japan because there are a lot of problems with funerals and uh, also about the money of the funerals. Uh, I don't know whether you're aware that the uh, average funeral in Japan costs 11 times more than a funeral in England. Huh? That's quite a bit of money. <coughs> but there are also many other problems about the funeral. Now, the second um, goal of, these, um, of this uh, association, as I said, which has now 53 chapters all over Japan, is improving, um, uh, improving terminal care in hospitals and developing hospice programs. In 1981, there was only one hospice in the whole of Japan and we have now practically every year several lectures on in all these chapters and uh, I take every year about uh, uh, 30 Japanese medical doctors and nurses to visit hospices in uh, Australia, in New Zealand, in Hawaii, uh, USA East Coast, USA West Coast, Canada, Ireland, England, Germany, Austria. And um, many of these doctors who have uh, uh, come along on these hospice tours, after they return to Japan, they have started hospices in, here in, uh, in Japan. Like here, uh, St. John's Hospice in Tokyo also, the medical doctor, he came along with me. And l last year we went to Austria and Germany, this year to Ireland and England, and next year I plan a tour to Australia to um, to Melbourne and to Sydney. And so we have now today, as I said, in 1981, there was one hospice, and now we have 173 hospices in Japan. And that is, I think, a very great improvement, uh, better care. Uh, I always stress uh, you do not enter a hospice to die, but to live hu in a humane way till the end. And the hospice movement, I think, is an enormous improvement in terminal care in Japan. For 20 years, I have um, uh, offered every year uh, here at Sophia University in an evening course in the community college, a course on hospice volunteer training. So on the average, usually between 100 and 150 people came every year, Friday night at 7 o'clock here. Most of them come direct from work and took this course, and many of them are working now not only in the hospices of the Tokyo area, but also in many uh, hospitals and even at the Tokyo Cancer Institute. And um, now uh, volunteers are absolutely, uh, absolutely needed for hospice work. Uh, as I said, I have, for 20 years, I've every year taken a group of Japanese doctors and nurses, I have visited to over 200 hospices around the world, and that's what impressed me very much, that uh, often there are 
uh, uh, for 20 patients, like in Tokyo, St. John's Hospital has 20 beds and 100 uh, volunteers working there. Uh, many of them trained here at this university. So this is an enormous um, improvement in Japan. And uh, during the pioneer years, uh, Japanese hospices did not receive uh, money, uh, any financial support. But during the um, past years, this has improved a lot. And um, I must say, when I, I work, have been working, and I'm still working in the, the several um, committees in the Ministry of Health, and when you talk about improving um, terminal care in general ways, and it is better for human beings to die in a more humane way, um, you don't uh, notice much uh, uh, interest. But the moment you use the word cost-cutting, everybody starts listening, everybody takes, uh, uh, starts taking it on. And so I try to get this point across that um, to keep dying patients in high-tech hospitals is much more expensive than to have them spend the last weeks in a hospice where you have no machines at all. There are no life-prolonging um, uh, 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 machines in, in a hospice. So you can cut costs, uh, can, can, uh, cost, uh, cut costs. And that convinced the um, ministry people. They got interested in that. Eh? And now, actually, in Japan, uh, hospices get per patient per day, niman uh, hasenen, per patient per day. I don't know in US dollars, is it something around $300 or I'm not sure about the. Eh? $250 a day, which uh, is quite. Um, so most people who work in hospitals, they say they can cover the basic costs. Eh? Of course, they need some extra if they want to in, in, introduce what I always recommend, music therapy, art therapy, bibliotherapy, and all these things. They are not covered by the government or by insurance. But uh, it's a quite, uh, quite an improvement also in the financing of hospices. And that has, of course, um, improved. And I am also working in a, in a foundation. We give money to uh, uh, new hospices usually three OQN for a new hospice for the building. If they uh, give us the plans, they have to show us the plans for that, so that there is a real hospice and so, because there are abuses too. And also in this um, foundation, we give uh, money, scholarships to 80 nurses every year. And we have now already several thousand nurses who have had taken this um, the hospice courses and have now the title hospice nurse after graduating from this course. And we give them their full scholarship. And four nurses can go to abroad to study abroad too. They get scholarships and even um, some doctors now if they want to uh, go abroad and they, you know. Now this is the second, our second goal, the improving terminal care and um, helping people to face the final stage in a more humane way. Ne? And of course, um, uh, as I said earlier, the um, pain control, that is also a one uh, very basic issue which has improved a lot. Now the third goal of the association that I founded, as I said, in, in 1982, the third goal is 
um, establishing mutual support groups for bereaved people. Now, um, in the United States, uh, where I did my uh, graduate studies in New York, I uh, discovered very early that uh, the big difference between a hospital and a hospital, in hospitals, the patient is at the center of attention all the time, and in a hospice, the patient and the family are considered as one unit from the very beginning. So care for the uh, families who are facing the loss of the father or mother or husband or wife or child is uh, an essential part of the American hospice movement. So the American Hospice Association has a strict rule that uh, uh, whenever a patient dies in a hospice, the hospice is obliged to offer a one-year grief care for the, um, uh, for the families. And uh, they usually do it in the hospice. They usually have one room. Or in uh, Australia, I was very impressed. I go there again next year. Uh, in Sydney, there's uh, Calvary Hospice is the name. They have a, an extra building right next to the hospice building, and that's exclusively for grief care. There is an, a trained uh, grief counselor who has studied uh, psychology, and he has trained 12 volunteer volunteers as grief counselors. And they have a whole house for themselves, and they usually will um, uh, send a letter or give a phone call to the families uh, a few weeks after the death of the patient, because right after death, the families are usually busy with the funeral and finding a new job or whatever. But usually after three or four, year, four weeks when they have settled down a little bit, then they will get, uh, receive a phone call from, the, um, from this uh, grief center and invite them if uh, you find, if you uh, want to try out here, you can come into a, a group, in a, in a bereaved uh, group, or also get uh, private counseling. Now, what I did here in Japan, I um, uh, made it a point that every of the, uh, all of these 53 chapters, they offer every month uh, as um, uh, grief groups, mutual support groups. And here in Tokyo, the Tokyo Seito Shio Kangaru Kai, the Tokyo chapter of the um, Association for uh, Death and Bereavement. We have every month here in Yotsuya uh, three bereavement groups. One is called Cosmos no Kai, that is for um, uh, widows and widowers. The second is uh, Sumire no Kai, that is for parents who have lost a child. And the third group is Wasure Nagusa no Kai, that is for families after a loss uh, through suicide. We don't use the word, Japanese words, uh, jisatsu, because it sounds for the families, it's very satsu, ne? that is very hard. So we always use the word jishi, ne? Um, uh, jishi for, for suicide. But uh, <laughs> we get people coming by, by Shinkansen from Nagoya who come here and they tell me, well, I so far I couldn't talk about that my husband committed suicide. This is the first time that I can talk because they know here everybody in this room has the same experience. Everybody has lost somebody through suicide. And uh, so that's called Vasuri Nagusa no Kai. So we have every month these three groups here and um, Many have told me that by be, being able to talk about it, they, um, 
they uh, uh, recovered and they are now working, many of them are working as volunteers, uh, helping also as volunteers in these uh, various chapters. Now, um, the third group is especially important because, as you know, there are an average of uh, 94 suicides a day in Japan. They, they are published. I know from my experience, I meet a lot of people who do not appear in the statistics, uh, wives of medical doctors who have told me, you know, my uh, husband committed suicide, but I asked a friend, a doctor friend, to write something else. So many people do not appear. So the, the, the real number of suicides in Japan is probably closer to 120 a day. Ne? But the published figure is 94. Mm -hmm. So this is a very important issue because the families feel shame and they feel often guilt feelings that they didn't support the husband when he lost his job. And many have told me if I had at that time um, told, uh, supported my husband more, he needed emotional support after he was suddenly fired from his company, Ristorant, as you know, Ristorant, that's a huge number of people after Ristorant, they commit suicide, they jump in front of the jewel line here. Ne? That's the reason, incidentally, why I go every day, you know, I practically every week a uh, lecture where I have to go to uh, by, by Shinkansen and I have to catch the Nozomi in Tokyo. Ne? But, uh, you know, from, to from Yotsuya Station to Tokyo Station, it takes only 10 minutes, and I leave the campus here one hour earlier, only because of suicides. Ne? I have had so often the experience that the Chuo-san doesn't run, especially I give often lectures on Saturdays and Sundays, and somebody jumps in front of the Chuo line and the Chuo line doesn't work. And I had one recently, and there were, were 1,300 people waiting for my lecture in Nara. And if I don't catch this uh, Nozomi, you know, I won't be there in time, and these 1,300 were waiting for me. So I uh, ran to the, um, to the subway, the Maranucci line, I went by subway. When I arrived in Tokyo Station, you know, I was already giri-giri, and I rushed with my big bag uh, to, the, to the Nozomi, and just as I tried to get into the train, it closed like this. Ne? And of course, this way the, the train doesn't move, so the door opened again, and it went Nozomi-dori. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, well, but I have had this experience so often, so I, often, I always leave one hour before um, to um, uh, avoid this uh, problem. Now, uh, as I said, uh, these people who have a uh, suicide experience in their families, they need a mutual support group where they can talk about it. Uh, by just uh, being forced to hide it, not being allowed to talk it, because nobody in, in Japanese society wants to hear about it, and also the fear that it may um, damage the, the marriage, uh, uh, marriage uh, potential of their children. That's a very big issue in Japan. I have had that several times here at uh, Sophia University. You know, uh, two of my former students were taking my philosophy of death course. They wanted to marry, to have their wedding in the Kulturheim Chapel here on campus. Ne? And they had, we had the uh, rehearsal and everything, and two days before the actual wedding, they came crying and said, we would like to cancel their wedding. Ne? 
and I asked them, I, I thought that they had a problem. They had no problem at all. The el oldest bra brother of the bridegroom had committed suicide somewhere in Inaka. And of course, you can't, in Japan, you cannot have a wedding two days after a funeral. So I said, well, then if you want, you know, you can wait about two or three months, and if you want, I can then reserve the the Kulturheim um, Chapel again for you. And um, as it turned out, her family was absolutely opposed. They said, you will under no circumstances marry uh, somebody who has a suicide in the family. That's a very b big issue in Japan, eh? that they say, and I told her, I explained to her, the Ani is the Ani, and the Ototo, the Ototo is a beautiful boy, and you should um, think about it. But I said, yeah, I have been thinking about it, but my family is absolutely opposed, does not allow me to. And they, um, they just didn't marry. Ne? So, but the older brother, the Ani in the Inaka, when he committed suicide, he certainly didn't think that he would not only kill himself, but he would also kill the happiness of his Ototo, of his younger brother and he would kill also the happiness of the bride of his younger brother. That is a very big issue. Therefore, Japanese people, they hide, they try to hide uh, the fact that somebody in the family has committed suicide. And all the more, I think, we have to offer them a space and a opportunity to talk about it. And first to find out, that's what many people tell me, they have to find out, I am not the only one who has experience. Here, everybody in this room has the same experience. And then they can, by talking about it, they can also uh, search for ways how to live now after suicide in the family, which is very, very difficult in Japan, precisely because you don't have the social support if you cannot talk about it. Now, uh, these are the three goals of the association. And as I said, in these 53 cities in Japan, we have uh, every month also uh, mutual support groups for bereaved. And in that way, uh, I think a lot of people who have gone through this enormous crisis of losing somebody, um, they uh, find a way um, to live again. Um, incidentally, uh, in English, uh, we use the word widow for somebody who, <laughs> and some of you who have studied Jap Japanese probably have learned that widow in Japanese uh, means mibojin. Eh? That's not correct. I use the word mibojin in an NHK television program, and the program was immediately stopped and said we have to do the whole program again from the beginning because Mibojin is a Sabbath's yogo. You are not allowed to, to use the word Mibojin on, in NHK. Ne? So we had to do the same program all over again. And it's very tough, you know, when you sit in front of the camera, you're not allowed to look at your manuscript. You have to do it all by, by heart. Ne? And to, uh, for 30 minutes just in front of the camera, and you have to, supposed to uh, always in, um, told that you have to look into the camera and we had to do the whole program. We had 25 minutes done, and then uh, I had to start all over again because of the miboji. Eh? So don't ever believe when you have learned in a, in a language school that a widow in English means miboji in Japan. It doesn't mean miboji. It means otto ushinata tsumana. 
That's uh, that's uh, Japanese, uh, the NHK Japanese. Né? Now, the, uh, all, <laughs> now I personally believe too that Mibojin is not a fortunate formulation because of the lady who is, has not yet died. Né? I think that uh, is not a good. But I suffered from that. Né? Now I have one more point that I try in this to this uh, association of death and grief counseling to spread is the um, the um, uh, the, the uh, memorial services. We did just a memorial service here in Yotsia just a week ago, last Sunday, and uh, 110 bereaved people came to that, and I will have another one in Toyohashi next uh, next uh, month. Um, uh, we usually, I encourage all these uh, 53 chapters we have every year once, once uh, a memorial service, né? where they can come and uh, where we do it in different ways, sometimes in a religious context, in a Buddhist temple, sometimes in a Christian church, and sometimes like last Sunday, we did it in a, in a, a simple in a meeting room. And usually I talk for half an hour about uh, loss and grief, né? and about the uh, experience of, uh, of grief. Then um, we usually have uh, some music therapy. We often have, uh, last uh, Sunday too, we had uh, some very beautiful music. And, and they always tell me this music is, uh, is a, has a healing, he's a healing impact, so I believe in this music therapy. And after that, we, I divide them up in groups of, of eight or five or ten. Um, we had one, one and ten, so we had to usually ten at one table. And then they can ch talk to each other about their loss experience and about their pain and their grief. And um, uh, I use this German uh, uh, proverb, it's very famous, where geteilte Freude is doppelte Freude, geteiltes Leid is halbes Leid. In Japanese, Tomoni Yorokobuno wa Nibai no Yorokobi, Tomoni Kurishimi no wa Hambu no Kurishimi. That if you can talk about, uh, about some joyful thing, that you double your joy. And if you talk about, you can talk about your pain. If you have somebody who listens to your pain, that, that uh, uh, lessens the pain. That's the, uh, the, the meaning of the original German proverb. And I think the role of the, both this, um, the bereavement groups and also the uh, mem memorial service where they then, in the second half of the memorial, they can talk to each other. And I always feel that the people, by talking about it, by being able to have, to express their pain and also to have people who um, listen with sympathy, I think that has a, a healing effect. Uh, even if it is not um, half the pain, as the German proverb says, but it is. And I often use the Japanese word kiki uh, for your crisis, kiki. That uh, kiki has the two uh, characters. The first one is abunai, the dangerous aspect, the negative aspect, and the second is chance. Né? The second key of kiki is chance so that every kiki, every crisis experience ha is also a chance for, for personality growth or for, um, um, uh, for growing as a human person. And uh, a lot of people find that very helpful. Né? That, uh, I mean, these people who have, suffer who have suffered the loss of a loved one, they all know that this is a very painful, it's probably the most painful uh, crisis, kiki in their life. But it has not only a negative aspect, 
uh, it was um, first this uh, new word was coined in German by Freud, uh, Trauerarbeit, ne? in English grief work, in Japanese Hitan no Shigoto or Monosagyo, both are used in Japanese, uh, Hitan no, uh, uh, no Shigoto. So I always stress that, uh, that uh, it is not only a passive suffering that you go through when you lose a loved one, but it has also demands uh, an active doryoku, um, uh, an active arbeit uh, um, uh, or grief work to walk through the uh, uh, way. If, if any one of you is interested, I, I wrote um, uh, 30 books in Japanese about this, and the first one is also, if you want to, uh, you can pass them around. The first one is also about this grief, Shito Domo Gyalka. And then I have another one on the second page on, on top, that is, I uh, published that together with this famous writer, Yamagiya Kuyo, uh, his son committed suicide, and then I offered to him that we could have uh, uh, one day seminar here at Jochidayaku in Sofia University and um, talk about the, have different people talk about the issue of, uh, of, um, of sudden death and grief. Né? Because sudden death, grief after sudden death is different from uh, grief if you know that your <laughs> father or mother will die from cancer in three weeks. Then you can um, you can prepare your soul or you can pre prepare yourself that, and you know for three weeks your father or your mother or your husband or wife will die, but you can be, but after a sudden death, there's of course no preparation. You suddenly, it hits you, and so after suicide, and we had a whole day here at, with 800 people here in our uh, biggest lecture hall at Sofia University, and afterwards we published it as a book on the second page on the top, the, I know, um, uh, it's still available. And I, I brought a copy. It's in the room next door. You can after uh, look look at the. Um, at the <coughs> this is the the book I published by is part by NHK. The uh, <coughs> uh, one more uh, issue I will just uh, very briefly touch is the uh, issue of uh, disenfranchised grief. Disenfranchised grief is not yet in the most American or English dictionary, so it's not uh, very well known. For those who know Japanese, it's konin sarete nai shitan. I wrote a published an article in Japanese about it, Konin Saritinai Hitan. This is dis disenfranchised grief, but it's not yet, it's a new English word, which is not yet in, in most of the uh, English dictionaries. But it's a very important issue because uh, many people uh, experience a loss, um, they have no support. Né? And uh, this disenfranchised grief uh, means that um, uh, can have three reasons. One is um, the relationship is not recognized. The second reason is the loss is not recognized. And the third reason can be the griever is not recognized. Eh? So it's the first one, sort of in Japanese, aru kankei wa konin saritinai. 
for example, for homosexuals or uh, 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 people for um, uh, uh, homo if uh, one partner dies, this person uh, who lost his or her friend uh, has not the usual social support that an ordinary people person has who, who loses his wife, his father, or, or, or whoever. They, and that is called in English now disenfranchised grief. And in the article I published in a Japanese journal, if anybody's interested, I call it Konin Saritinai Hitan. And the second type is, um, is uh, the, the, the loss is not recognized. Aru Soshitsu wa Konin Saritinai. For example, in the case of abortion or uh, a pet loss, too. Many elderly people, when they lose their dog or their cat, they, um, nobody thinks that's a big deal, but for an elderly person in Japan, it can be a very hard loss. Né? But nobody thinks about it. And, and I have heard from children, they, or the elderly have told me, that the son tells you, oh, pap, now we will, we'll buy you another dog or another cat. Né? But that's not the issue. Né? He lost or she lost her pet. Né? which is a very important pet to him or her. Né? And you cannot just say, well, we'll just buy another cat for you. Don't worry about it. Né? That's the second type of disenfranchised grief, And the third type is that the griever is not recognized. And that's especially for children and elderly. Né? So many families in Japan, if uh, somebody dies, like I said, the grandfather dies, they won't take the children to the um, to the funeral because they said, oh, the children cannot yet understand that. Né? But children grieve too, and elderly are sometimes excluded from the uh, from the funeral. They say, oh, he is already um, uh, de uh, suffers of dementia. He doesn't know what's going on, so they don't even tell him that an important family and the um, important person in the family has died, and that's also disenfranchised grief. So uh, in, in general, disenfranchised grief means that a person gets not the social support in his or her grief work. And that's a very big issue. As a, if anybody is interested, I published an article in Japanese about it in the magazine uh, Terminal Care. The title is Konin Saritinaichitan, which is also a very important issue about which I often talk here in Japan. And another issue that I just want to, sorry, time I want to touch very briefly is grief after death from overwork, karoshi in Japanese. Ne? Karoshi is death from overwork. And um, the uh, Hiroshi Kawahito, the Secretary General of the National Defense Council of Victims of Karoshi, claims that an estimated 10,000 Japanese, 10,000, die from karoshi each year sudden from uh, grief after the death from over. And one of the big issues is that companies do not want to admit that this employee has died from karoshi because then they would have to pay for it. Né? And so the government, of course, is always thinking about money. And uh, they made very clever rules, clever, um, that if a victim, now, now listen carefully, if a victim has worked 16 hours a day for seven consecutive days prior to his death, 
he has a chance of being classified as a Karoshi victim. Now I repeat, if a victim has worked 16 hours a day for seven consecutive days, if there's a break in between, no chance, then you maybe have a a chance, that doesn't mean you get the money, you have a chance to be classified as a Karoshi victim and so So I have talked to some uh, people and they are mad like hell, both at the company, that the company, uh, you know, let a husband or father or whoever it was, you know, work himself to death. But then they have also often guilt feelings about their own attitude that they did not tell the husband or the company, now this, you cannot do that or that's, that's just not human anymore. And there you have very special complicated grief. One more uh, complicated grief case is of course if there is a multiple loss. I used to go to, Nag to, uh, um, uh, uh, to Nago, uh, nicht Nago, no, yeah, to uh, Kobe uh, quite often after the earthquake and there we had many, many cases of multiple loss. Ne? That means first, and the, on the day of the earthquake, people that I met there, uh, they lost their, their, uh, their uh, mother, their father, the uh, uh, ch one child, the house, and the job. Ne? That's a lot of loss in one, one day. Ne? But then I went back uh, a month later, and then one of the uh, uh, women who had, uh, whom I had met a month before, she said, and now my husband committed suicide. That's a lot of loss together. So if we meet people who have had a uh, uh, loss experience, we should also inquire whether there are other losses in the same time period, for example, the last half a year and so. And a very typical case I have found often is that uh, somebody has uh, a loss of his job, either by early retirement or by normal retirement, and loses uh, during the same half year or, or during the same year his, his wife. Né? That's also a, a double loss or sometimes multiple loss. And um, that's often complicated grief then. Eh? That doesn't, you cannot just uh, um, think that they will uh, recover the same way as somebody who has had just one loss. So double loss, multiple loss, that's a very uh, big issue. Now, I, um, uh, we are coming to an end. I will leave some time for the discussion. As a conclusion, I would say we have to be aware that different cultures have indeed different attitudes toward death and dying, as well as toward bereavement and grief. Japanese perspectives on death and dying are not a static phenomenon and I want to stress it very much, but are rather in a dynamic, evolving process. Né? Therefore, I have picked as a title law, Evolving Japanese Perspectives, né? in the plural. Um, so the whole, um, during the 20th century and also now in the 21st century, uh, we are living in a, in a time of, um, um, as... Uh, Professor Kuhlmann also mentioned at the beginning, we are living in a period where things are changing and changing very much through the um, 
of course, to the whole population uh, change, the la la longer life expectancy, but also uh, that uh, the whole cultural phenomenon, the attitudes, for example, the, the hospice movement, when you figure that 1981, only one hospice in Japan, and now we have 173, things have improved a lot, and we can improve. And I always say we should not just say, oh, that's Japanese culture, or that's the Japanese way, but it, uh, as human beings, I think we all have a responsibility to not to, to only to be uh, uh, regulated by what is or what has been so far, but also ask the question of what is a humane way of spending your last days, what is a humane way of uh, living and dying. And I think there is uh, still a lot of room for improvement where we can uh, still uh, change a lot and improve a lot. And by doing so, we also have, of course, to be aware that the Japanese culture has some very important, valuable uh, ways of dealing with loss and also with um, with the with grief, for example, also the whole way of the Japanese funeral, funeral, and also the way of remembering the dead, and so they have very valuable uh, cultural assets in dealing with these issues, which I always stress that we should not easily give up. For example, in recent years. One thing that worries me is so-called famous people in Japan, they say no funeral. Né? Now, no funeral is not a good way because in a fu the funeral can be an important way of support in the painful uh, grief process. I, I can, can give you one example. A friend of mine here, a professor at Sophia University, died. Uh, no, well, <laughs> it started this way. He asked me, we had a... Uh, 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 a series of lectures, and he came to me and said, well, could you take, uh, give the lecture at my uh, date, whether um, boy, I am supposed to give, because I don't feel well, and then I will take it at your place. And was, uh, I said, that's fine with me. And then the next day I found out that he had died. And then I looked up the Asai uh, newspaper, and it says, he had died, there will be no funeral. Eh? So I suggested to um, uh, the wife, if you want, both had no religious uh, connection and the whole family, I said, if you want, I can reserve the Ignatius Church for a memorial service, not for a Catholic mass or so, simply for a memorial service for your wonderful husband, because he was such, I respect him as a great teacher, and. Uh, he, he is highly respected by his students and so And then she is, uh, eventually said, yes, um, that would be all right. Uh, then the Ignatius Church has 800 seats. Uh, 800 seats were filled with his present students that he that had taken his lectures on that year and with many graduates of our university and, of course, all the professors of his department came. And the wife was so amazed that her husband had been such a prop, popular professor, and there were two girls, uh, 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 children were coming, one a um, uh, uh, junior high school and one a senior high school um, uh, 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 girls, and they couldn't believe it that her father <laughs> had been such a popular professor. They had only seen him from another side, I don't know what side, but, but and they, and 
for them, for their wife and for their two daughters, this was a very important experience of, of social support in their painful um, grief process after the sudden death of their of husband and father. No? So thank you for your attention. <laughs> <laughs>